This official podcast coverage of AusCert's 2012 conference is brought to you by Arbor Networks. Smart, available, secure. Datacom TSS. Discreet, niche, tailored. And Sophos, secured. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special podcast from the AusCert 2012 conference. I'm Patrick Bray. Now, don't forget, you can head over to risky.biz slash for all of our Ossert podcasts. Uh, or if you want to get them on iTunes, search the podcast store for RB2 or Risky Business 2. Uh, you can't miss it. Now, you're about to hear a presentation by Mark Fabro. He's the president and chief security scientist for Lofty Perch. Basically, this guy is Mr. Scarter, Mr. Control Systems. Uh, you could go and you know Google around for his full bio if you want, but uh, you know if you have a listen to to Mark speaking for more than five minutes, you'll quickly realise that he really knows what he's talking about in the area of control system security. This talk is about performing incident response and forensic analysis on Scarter networks. It's very interesting stuff, and Mark is a great presenter. I hope you enjoy it. So I have got the better part of, of 40 minutes to spend some time with you. And, and today, I want to tell you a story. It's a story. And it's going to be fun. There, there is this emerging idea. And I apologize to the camera crew, because I'm always wondering. My wife says I'm much like a shark in the way that if I stop moving, I'm just going to die, or something like this. So, but we have this perception right now with this new onslaught of information coming at us, we're running around with our hair on fire, or what's left of our hair running around on fire. And it is fear, uncertainty, and debt as it relates to the systems that run critical infrastructures, the 18 in the United States, the 10 in Canada, and they're all the same, pipeline, oil and gas, refining, watering, uh, water, transportation, critical resources and things. This story is actually talking about a number of different things without ignoring the white elephant, the big white elephant in the room, which is, yes, we've got a very big problem, traditionally disparate isolated systems that run critical infrastructure that was protected by 3G security, that's guards, gates, and guns, <laughs> is now, because we want to do business better, faster, and stronger, connected. People who are running market information and market systems need to know real-time what's going on in the process, how much oil is being refined, how much stuff is in the pipeline, where the planes actually are, where the cargo is coming in, where the locks and the interseaways are going, all this kind of stuff. We want to talk about a, a, a good story. We want to talk about hostile mobile code and malware and the implications that it actually has in industrial automation. And there's a lot of research going on in this space because people are saying, well, we really have to be careful about what antivirus and anti-malware efforts look like in industrial automation because the theme of how we slice and look at the three tenets of cybersecurity, confidentiality, integrity, and availability, which we know in that order of priority in the IT world, is turned around. The systems that we're dealing with in critical infrastructure, supervisory control and data acquisition, distributed control systems, industrial automation processes, availability is actually everything. These systems are up 24 by 7 by 365. There's really very rarely, if ever, a window of opportunity to do reinstalls for the system. Patching and upgrades are few and far between because the approval process to implement changes to the system, because these are so intensively safety related, are long and arduous processes. 
Plus, there's the discussion about security countermeasures that have to be implemented and how they can actually implement, you know, impact production. We have solutions about IT security, firewalls, IDS, IPS, encryption, things like this that make such good sense to us in the IT world because we're worried about confidentiality, integrity, and availability. But yet, because of the availability requirements in the control system world, in the SCADA world, we have a problem at looking at how those countermeasures fix. Yeah, you know, when people say, well, I want to keep prying eyes. I want to keep the adversary out of my control environment so they can't deconvolute the protocol. So what are you going to do? Well, crypto. Perfect. That's absolutely awesome. Why not put crypto in the system? Well, that's great. I mean, in the IT world, you take it to the control system space where you're doing millisecond or sub-millisecond polling, and all of a sudden you go, well, crypto's awesome, but outside of the key management issue, I got a 30% latency hit across my domain, and I'm doing sub-millisecond polling, 30% null. Uh, that's a non-starter for me when I'm running localized distribution and grid management systems. So this story is going to walk us through getting the call when we had active, hostile mobile code malware in a control system, in a contemporary real control system, trying to deal with something that would normally be a benign nuisance threat in the IT space. And we're going to walk through this, and I'm going to try and sandwich it all into the next 40 minutes or so. And I apologize because in advance, the only way you can get through some of this discussion is to get down in the weeds. So we will actually be dropping fairly far down. So let's start this story. But first, um, it's a security conference. Can't have a session without saying the word cloud. There's my opinion of cloud. Can't locate our users' data. So <laughs> let's... Oh, okay. <laughs> Oh, I should stop, right? Eh? Questions. That's it. We're done. No. So in the agenda here, we're going to walk through just the, the background of what happened, the response plan activities, real-time activities, analysis and conclusions. And I want to be sensitive about the fact that the, thr I mean, the thrust in all of this is looking at how we would do incident response and forensics on these types of systems. The key underlying message is that the plan to do the investigation has to be very, very different because you're at the mercy of a bunch of variables that don't necessarily get encountered in the IT space. In this particular instance, we're talking about a pretty significant gas turbine facility, which is doing high generation. You're at the mercy of things like weather. Well, really, the weather has never impacted whether or not you can go in and do a forensics investigation on an IT system, but you're at the mercy of the weather because the system that you're trying to investigate, the critical cyber assets inside that environment are only going to be available based on what people are needing them to actually do. And, of course, load levels in the grid element you're working on is going to dictate what the assets are doing. So we know that what we've been doing since 2009, we have actually, contrary to popular opinion, I mean, these incidents happen all the time. One of the interesting things about this story is that we go through it, there's not an asset owner in the audience that's going to go, well, that's I'm totally unfamiliar with. We're actually going to be spending time talking about things that is well known in the asset owner community, but as it actually hasn't made it out to the rest of the world. Right. And I think it's a great story. But since 2009, we've done more than 20 of these things. We've actually had to get on a plane and go and respond to incidents of malware, cyber attacks, exfiltration of control system-specific data. And again, we're not talking about anything in the corporate domain. This is all behind the electronic security perimeter, if you wanted to call it that. These are the systems that are running the major facilities, whether they're inside a single fence, and they would be control systems or supervisory control of data acquisition, where you're talking about geographically challenged, very large disparate entities with the devices spread all over the country, pipelines, train, distributed water systems, and things like that. The triggers 
that bring us there are many. And the list is pretty interesting because you have single incident malware, which is one of the ones that we're going to talk about. You've got the notable exfiltration of control systems data where the asset owner has said, well, oops, we think we've actually got something. Or assisting federal authorities who are actually seeing the exfiltration of the data and then having to make a call to the asset owner. And the asset owner says, no, I, I don't, that's impossible. You're not seeing stuff leave our network. It's not, and then you go through the whole rigmarole of going on site and showing them. And that's not a really good day for anybody. Um, Ingress attacks from corporate to SCADA. This is the exploitation of the trusted relationship from those data sets, the databases on the corporate domain that need to continuously go inbound to get process information to be pulled back and be able to populate the C-level, you know, key performance indicators and, you know, performance parameters that they're, you know, key dashboard and things like that. It's the SCADA that is actually getting connected to from corporate peer sites, remote access, VPN. Egress triggers at the perimeter. Sometimes, and we'll talk about this later in the discussion, is that you have the egress filtering. One of the underlying themes in this is all about the fact that the systems, the architectures that we're dealing with in the control systems have a tremendous advantage to, in, with regards to building protective profiles. That is because these systems do the same thing all the time. We have much discussion about what do the firewall rule sets look like? What do IDS look like? What do IPS? How do I build the signature sets for these 15 different protocols that are running around my network? The issue is, is we have to understand that because the process is doing the same thing all the time, it actually becomes very, very easy to create normal operational envelopes. And we want to be looking for deviations from those normal operational envelopes to give us insight to something might be wrong. This actually works very, very well in the engineering space because we're taught to respond to events and alarms in process automation. Now, my background is IT security. I've done help develop two pretty popular commercial firewalls, one military grade, done all this kind of stuff. We have a very good capability right now in 2012 to take contemporary IT security solutions and get them to help fix these problems. We're going to talk about that, but they don't go direct. There is some tweaking that has to happen because of cultural issues and because of the availability and integrity requirements that are mandatory in these 24 by 7 by 365 systems. We get calls when they find data in the open source. People have actually been able to go out and find realistic target folders that include operational data for their mission-critical environment. That is worthy of a call. And you also have antivirus and countermeasures behaving badly. To think that it's never happened that a commercial antivirus has, as it's supposed to do, go in and quarantine and pick off viruses, DLLs, executables, suggested hostile files, and put them aside or eradicate them, to think that never happens to the point that you're taking out good quality, real operational files, shutting down control systems, to think it never happens is, is ridiculous. It happens all the time. It is not to say that the antivirus is doing a bad job. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that there is nomenclature issues, the way that we're actually building some executables, the way that the control systems are actually being built to go and reuse functional files to support availability and integrity. And we can have ongoing discussions. In fact, there's entire symposia dedicated to why security is so bad from a vendor perspective in the development of industrial automation applications. Because the systems are built for resiliency, reliability, and get back up and running as fast as you possibly can because they run critical infrastructure. And the sectors that we see this in are everywhere. We've got electric. We see them sometimes in nuclear. We've got generation, transmission, distribution, pipeline, water, mining, transportation, chemical, all of it. All right. So in this particular case, we had some preconditions, right? And the first one is that this is a, it is a peaking generator. We have three 
coordinated gas turbine generators, and they're doing combined cycle in multiple locations. So how many people, show of hands, have no idea what I'm talking about from you know, gas turbine generators? Okay, imagine a jet engine on crack. Crack being the is, is natural gas, and the thing is just so hyped up, and when it's spinning, you just stick a turbine down the middle of it, and it actually spins and makes power, and then it goes out to the yard, and they actually up-boost it and send it back into the grid. It's really the most wonderful, elegant way to see power being made. The only thing more elegant in watching a jet engine make this power is when vibration monitoring isn't handled properly, gets out of control, and the thing just self-destructs. That... That is something to be seen, not be near and observe or hear, but it's, it's, to see it is, is spectacular. All right, so we have a single supervisory control and data acquisition, and I'm going to flip back and forth between SCADA and, and industrial control system networks because it's a nomenclature issue that is, is also cultural, but we have a single SCADA network with tiered distributed control systems. This is not, unfortunately, a situation where the environment has a single vendor providing a single solution for the entire automation. There is data acquisition networks. There is the distributed components that drill down from human-machine interfaces and engineering workstations to manage the data, right down to the devices, which are the I.O., which are hanging on the turbines that actually monitor the rate of the way the things is going, incorporating vibration monitoring, making sure that it's spinning and doing and meeting the load demands from upstream load requirements. There's a bunch of, bunch of different moving parts, and plus you also have a specific network which is doing amalgamation and data, data aggregation across the control system network, which is putting it to a database, which is then now pushing it apparently one way, up to the DMZ where corporate can come in and harvest that information. So we have a bunch of moving parts here. So the facility, this is where I need you guys to start thinking and remembering ideas. So the facility actually gets wet tested and goes online in 2011. The entity is fantastically forward secure. This is a forklift reinstall of a major system, right? It's, a, it's like almost a brand new build. So in 2011 they go, and they are very, very security aware and forward link. They are just awesome. They had Configur, but they cleaned it up. That gave them reason to go out and build what I believe was one of the best, and this is a very, very forward-leaning, very, very brave entity, a defense in-depth strategy following a number of different models, ISA 95, the Purdue model for dense in-depth strategy, ISA models for, for zones and conduits to be able to ensure that you have security among the working levels with the security and the accreditation for the system elements and the devices and the components getting more and more rigorous the farther you get down into the critical asset domain. Obviously, the security around the programmable logic controllers and the HMI should be higher than those associated with the database that sits on the corporate side. So they had created this defense in-depth strategy. They have a protocol for the introduction of removable media. And why is that? Well, because they're smart. And as much as we talk about hackers and attackers getting into the systems remotely, we still have this problem of wetware, layer 8. People running around with removable media and the USB. I am not going to spend time. I didn't even think I was going to say Stuxnet, but there, I said it. Right? You have this, this guy's going to talk about skating. He's going to say Stuxnet. He's going to say cloud. I'm going. It's even though it's early in the morning. So I've said it. And you have the removable media. That's how the engineers get their data around. That's how it's moved. USB sticks all over the place. When you go onto a site and you watch engineers and integrators walk around, they walk with their lanyards, they've got their ID, and this fantastic single point of failure, this lanyard that weighs about 60 kilograms, and it's all USB keys for each one of the... You, you know what, I, you know, it's fantastic, right? So this facility actually had this protocol saying, you bring in a USB stick in, it goes into our scanning machine, which is going to get hit by six 
up-to-date antivirus removal tools, you're going to write down the serial number, what you're actually going to do, and you're going to go do your work. On the way out, you're going to do exactly the same thing. That's what's, and this actually should be very cool. You're absolutely monitoring removable media, among different other things. They also have anomaly detection at the network level and egress filtering. They actually made the assumption that they're going to get compromised. So rather than spend all of the resources and effort looking about the firewall that's protecting the electronic security perimeter, protecting the control system environment, what if somebody actually got in there? What if someone got in there and was actually able to put malware in that wanted to start a C2 channel outbound? What, what would they need and how can we stop that? Egress monitoring, right? And this is an underlying theme in a lot of industrial automation security practices. Make the assumption that someone's on the inside. How do you stop them from getting out? That's a good thing. It's a good idea. So this new malware shows up in 2011, the same year, and it's across the SCADA system. This is where we get the call. So what's interesting? The complexity of the environment didn't allow for ubiquitous antivirus and malware countermeasures to be deployed across the entire thing. We actually didn't have antivirus in what turned out to be machine zero. Couldn't do it. Why couldn't you do it? Well, it's interesting. A majority of the major vendors that were involved in providing the solution for this particular generation facility had very specific standards and guidelines for the antivirus technology to be used and how it was configured. Right. It was very, very clear. And there was a process and investment associated with building that out and rolling it out. So we didn't have the same antivirus all over the place. And in fact, some of them didn't have it. Some of the solutions that were not depicted and instructed forcibly, so to speak, by the vendor it turned out that the CPU requirements for the AV to be configured in its most optimum space chewed up the CPU to the point that it could, under duress, impact the operator's ability to perform their function. That means if the operator needed to do something very, very significant under duress and the AV was running, the CPU swapping would actually impact the time to which they could respond. So some of the people at the management level said, I don't know if we actually can have antivirus on this at this point. Let's do the research. So all of this happened while it's being rolled out. So the malware gets reported by the visiting engineer. Good times. See, the visiting engineer actually used the protocol for the antivirus and did the inbound and the outbound. But yet, when the engineer got off their plane, when they got back home, they made a phone call back to the acidor and said, hey, I got some bad news. The primary human machine interface at the facility seems to be a little bit different. Turns out it's hot. My antivirus here says, you're hot. So the asset owner goes back and does a little bit of investigation, and sure enough, it's hot. Well, it wasn't hot before. We're following the protocol. How did it get in here? After a couple of hours' discussion, you determined that you can't really say with certainty if the infection was brought in by the media source since the system going live, or <laughs> it was infected prior to delivery. And this is where everybody gets freaked out, right? Like, wait a second, okay, I can understand Bob, the idiot engineer, coming in, and he's got the USB stick that he's playing with at home, and he's just going to use that to upload some files. And then I'm saying, well, I've got a visiting engineer coming in from another country who's actually coming in to do this kind of stuff. Um, but what about the possibility that this thing actually showed up hot? What's that say for my supply chain? How, what am I going to do? So this is, at this point, the feds come and get involved. This is where the story gets interesting. 
The asset owner wants to follow the Pickerel model, and because we are being called to do this, we, we honor this process of preparation, identification, containment, eradication, recovery, and lessons learned. This is traditionally part of a multi-tier response where you're preparing remote support and get your guys ready for the flyaway team. This is a model that is actually based on best practices for IT. And the asset owner has found that this is going to be the model that we need to follow. So we do. And it turns out that it's actually pretty effective. So from a preparation perspective, we take their picker model, we go and look at a couple of documents that are out there. The NIST 882, the DHS Control System Security Program recommended practice for forensics and incident response and control system because they are very, very different. We begin to populate the flyaway kit having an idea of the number of assets that we're going to be investigating. This is just a cautionary note for those investigators out there when you look at this list. So we've got 50 new USBs, right? We're going to be running sys internals, uh, fast dump pro, field edition, all that, end case, and extra foo. I've given this presentation four times before, and I want to answer this now. You can't go download extra foo. That's a just a nomenclature for the stuff that we have proprietary that we build. Extra foo is not a tool. I'll got, based on the demand, I should probably go build it right now. <laughs> Extra foo is just a catch-all for stuff that we have that nobody else has that we've built to do this kind of stuff. The other thing with regards to looking at the USBs, the capture files that you're going to get from artifacts in real-time memory analysis as opposed to dead memory analysis, and this is what we're going to talk about, because remember, you can't take these systems offline. We find this out when you get there, and know this before we get there. We need to be able to do incident response and forensics on a system that is alive. We can't take it offline. We're going to need the USBs to figure out what's going on. For those of you out there that are going to be interested in doing this, I encourage you to go out to the floor and grab those one or two gigabyte small USBs. Because when you're going out there with 50 new USBs and you're paying, I don't know, $40 for 16 or 32, yeah. Am I there? Are we alive? It's good, batteries just kick in? It's good times. When you are actually going out, really? Yeah. You know, everybody laughs when I kid about hitting critical mass and the system becoming self-aware. <laughs> this is it. This is the moment. You boys okay? What are we doing here? It's like they're looking for something. Awesome. All right. It's just great. This is great. And the blogosphere goes crazy. Fabro's controlling the lights and everything. Be very careful. Don't go out and spend a boatload of money buying 50 USBs that can accommodate 32 gigabytes of data because you're going to be grabbing one, like 500K, one meg chunks of data. And every single chunk of data you get, you got to pull out of the drive and stick in the evidence bag. When you're doing 30 or 40 bucks per USB and you show up with 50 or 60 of them and you kiss them all goodbye because you've wasted them on 500 bytes of data, think again. So rush out there to the show floor and grab those USB keys. Clean them, of course. Well, you might not have to because I'm sure they're all devoid of viruses. <laughs> <laughs> 
The response team has confirmed that there was backups. Because we're talking about a semi-new build that actually hasn't been alive for a year, there was a protocol doing the Acronis backups. So we knew that there was backups that are actually going to be there of the control, some of the control system stuff. And we want to be able to take a look at the initial antivirus reports. Right? The most important thing in all of this is creating the spread map. Having access to the network diagrams and intelligence about the characteristics of the malware you have to be able in the control system domain to say in a worst case scenario or best case scenario, how does the malware spread? Once I know the attributes and characteristics of the malware, of the virus, whatever it's going to be, where is it going to go and how is it going to impact the assets or the critical assets based on how they are communicating with each other? Is it going to be sh shares? Is it going to be USBs? What's the operational specifics of the automation environment that's going to tell me when I show up where should I be looking for this thing? That dictates what my investigation plan looks like because I'm going to have to go up to somebody and say, I'm here, the police are here, we want to take a look inside the system and do the forensics analysis live while your system's running. That's right, we, wanted, we, don't, we, don't, we don't work here, but we're going to walk in and we're going to start poking and prodding your system. That is live, that operators are sitting in front of, that is running, this multi-parallel gas turbine generator that's making power and feeding to a grid. Yes, we're going to do that. You have to be careful to build that plan of approach, and these steps allowed us to do that. The response tactics, we want to be able to understand several things right away. The mobility of the malware, whether or not there's going to be a command and control channel, the behavior, and the properties. We have to do concurrent analysis, not just on what the malware is doing itself. Map that to the spread case. We have to define the high targets of evaluation. We also got to be sitting on the network because if there is a C2 channel trying to be started, the C2 channel is actually going over the same network that is running process control data. Does the C2 channel start to, either intentionally or by accident, impede the ability for that traffic to flow in that mission critical environment? So, you know what, if this was an IT issue, so okay, wait, well, we'll wait for the weekend, we'll wait for the night, we'll tear all the stuff down, who cares? We can do something that's going to force people not to see their mail for 20 minutes, they can live with that. This would be a situation where you're going to go to the operator and say, can I take away your view and control of this massive facility for a couple of days? No, I don't, it's not going to happen. So we built the investigation plan and we send them on their way. And we want to do the initial analysis when we get there, the first thing that happens is that the initial analysis, we cannot prove that the event was not intentional. So again, we're kind of going, this is pretty, pretty, pretty interesting. And as we go through this, we're going to actually see as we go farther and farther down into the system and how we do that, we get some interesting things. So we get the quarantine logs, artifact. This is pretty much standard stuff. But the issue is, is we want to look at the right attempt logs and the asset failure logs. It becomes very, very important at this point to say, I've got malware, I've got hostile code, and I have timestamps of system failure. I need to correlate very fast whether or not the infection itself shut down the system. Now, shutting down the system could be a feature of the malware when it's doing a re reboot process, you know, putting its tentacles in, rooting itself, making registry keys, and forcing a reboot. Or the malware, in a worst case scenario, could be specifically designed to stop the system. And again, stopping is very, very bad, right? Stopping these facilities is easy. I mean, a lot of the time, like in the nuclear domain, it's, you know, your challenge is to keep the thing running. It always wants to shut down. Your challenge is to keep it running and it wants to fail safe. Big generation, refining these facilities, shutting them down, easy. Getting them started again, non-trivial. Absolutely non-trivial. We take a look at the current AV and the countermeasures to look at the, uh, the infection landscape 
and we change the plan to accommodate that. This allows us on site to start looking at near, mid, and long-term availability demands because our scope in the control system, we do not have the luxury of saying, I want to go and investigate this mail server, this DNS server, this web server, I'm going to go do it right now. Well, you can't. You have to prioritize the criticality of the actual critical assets and be able to move when they become available because there's a lot of moving parts in terms of weather, the availability of the folks. It's amazing. Even union rules by themselves will impact whether or not you can get in to touch a system. There are unions that are responsible for managing visitors going into a certain room, another union aspect that sits whether or not you can actually touch the HMI, who's got to be watching you, whether or not you have to have a hard hat on, things like this. It's all very exciting, right? Active forensics and SCADA is broken down into three parts, right? You've got the main imaging running processes in the core. The main imaging is actually very, very straightforward because you have the preloaded servlets and you want to map the known DLLs and executables that are in the process themselves. Now, when I'm talking about that, those are vendor-specific applications that are overlays on top of core OSs, right? Loosely saying, in this particular case, we had an underlying Microsoft operating system, and on top of it, we had multiple vendors providing their applications tied to the functionality of the under operating system, right? This leads us down the road to say, okay, well, right now, we know we've got about 300 or some odd known, fully disclosed vulnerabilities specific to control systems and industrial automation. However, because the applications themselves that the vendors have made rely on an underlying operating system, which in itself could have tens of thousands of vulnerabilities, which one of those vulnerabilities actually could facilitate an adversary through direct interaction or mobile code to get a toehold on the control system application? So this gets very, very ugly very, very fast. In the main imaging, we also tie that with egress monitoring. We constantly want to be able to be looking at the normal operational envelope, the behavior of the applications in real time, and what's happening on the network. Are the executables doing what they're supposed to do? Are they actually the executables we're supposed to be seeing? And what happens with the egress monitoring in case this nasty is trying to get outbound and cause damage in the network? That takes us to the next level, where we look at the running processes, right? We've got the open handles, we are mapping the virtual address space, and particularly looking at the network sockets. Now again, you notice at the top above this, this beautiful chart with big letters and bright colors and easy shapes, right? It's actually easier when the system is operating for a single purpose. We have the luxury to say, I know what this system is supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be doing one thing and only one thing. We have 30 live assets that we have got to do in real time. Can't take them offline. We've got 30 live assets in real time. We have seven primary human-machine interfaces. They're clones, which are the seven backup human-machine interfaces. We've got four principal databases, the primary validation computer that I talked about, an antivirus server, multiple engineering workstations, multiple master engineering workstations across domains, redundant distributed control systems, redundant control net, vendor remote access, offsite central monitoring and control. Wow. That's a lot of stuff, and it's like, well, you know, we'll just tear it down. This is not the situation where you're taking it offline and imaging it. The identification. So we go, all systems, we're going to be completely subject to the same process. We know that it came on USB. The USBs come out, and we go through, and we take the USB, and we inject it into every machine, hoping that we have some standardization or ubiquity of whatever this nasty is going to be, and we can recreate it, right? We also go and acquire the RAM and the page file information from each system in its live state to be able to do a cross-correlation and take the volatile information. Later on, we talk about what the aspects are in the live memory analysis we need to be looking at. 
We had the acronym of backup, which was very, very useful. So the initial trigger from all of this, when the guy phoned back in and he said, okay, so it's autoinf.b, we're like, well, that's kind of vague. We can kind of look it up, give us some more intel. Uh, USB zero analysis was done off-site or on a plane or in the guy's basement or in the pub or wherever it was, but we didn't actually have it and we can't get hold of this person to say, send it back. But by this time, it's an artifact. It's gone. Forget it. It's just, it's not going to be worth it. So we do two forms of the collection. We analyze the verified backups, first of all, because we're worried that's going to take a very, very long time depending on the forensics toolkits we're going to use. And we have to get the live system while it's actually operational, while at the same time having the team watching concurrent at traffic analysis, because this thing is live and it's in the system. We did notice that by using the USB, we got the virus to jump every single time. So we're starting to think we're going to be lucky because this is a virus that is specifically designed, hopefully, for USB. I mean, it's bad if you're dealing in the control system, and easy from a management perspective. We start going through the acronyms backups in NCASE, and we find out that we can do the backup done in less than two hours. FTK took five and a half hours after we did it all. It took 5.5 hours of the original host. So we went to the backups with one particular tool, and it took us less than two hours. Later on in the investigation, we did remapping re and re-imaging. We're up to almost six hours using FTK. Now, the infected human-machine interface that we were after had actually been backed up, and this turned out to be a positive thing. So what was it? Well, it was Hamwack. Woohoo! Hamwack. In the IT space, you get Hamwack, it's like, okay, don't care. I really don't care. Get rid of it. Doesn't really matter. The problem is, is that the attributes associated with it make it pretty nasty in the control system domain, right? Recursive internal queries for engineering USB drives. CPU goes through the roof because the thing's watching the USB drive. Is there one there? One there? One there? One there? One there? One there? Are you there? Are you there? Are you there? I want to propagate by USB resources being spent looking and checking the USB drive. It creates egress traffic on the process control network because it wants to be part of a botnet. Oh, great. This is good. Hang on, give me two seconds here. I need power. I should have power. Bear with me, I'm trying to make power. Be powerful. I have power. It's just a banner thing. There we go. We'll see whether or not that works, I don't know. So we also have this botnet function of Hamweck itself. We're like, well, that's not really going to be very good because it wants to cause sporadic shutdown and it is principally designed for availability and distributed denial of service. It wants to get on the network. <laughs> it wants to get onto the network and it wants to find other machines and it wants to call home. It does a number of different things. Most importantly, it creates the bogus recycles directory and it creates into the sys32. It's going to go out and run this csrxx.exe and bury itself invisibly in the recycling folder. It also wants to start making calls out on these certain ports, TCP ports. It's got the desktop INI and the autorun.inf. It's got everything, all the attributes of looking normal, but we want to be able to take the thing out and actually see here that we have on the particular drive that's been injected into an infected system, it goes and it's right. And this, of course, has been appropriately obfuscated because it's impossible to do this presentation in a way that is not going to allow us to actually see what the system is. So we can actually see it for the malware analysis in the recyclers directory. It's actually cut. We can see csrxx.exe. We load this thing into Raptor because it's, no, it's not going to run on a Unix platform, but we want to actually see it build. And we can actually look from, the, from clockwise, from about 11 o'clock down to 10 to about 7 o'clock, we can see it building, creating the recycler directory, autorun INF, necessary executables, and the modification to the registry keys. Persistence, when it's trying to be able to call out to this usb.mizitike.info, the persistence actually goes, and these are the key changes in the stub path associated with it. So this is where it sits. But what does this actually mean to us? in the context of this program. 
is this there because the engineer brought it in or was it there beforehand? So we go into the prefetch files and see what the system wants to do relevant to this to make it run better, faster, and stronger. Right? And we find six files referencing the actual malware, three of them associated with this, and it's run 60 times off the drive. Quick screenshot of the secondary master engineering workstation, the secondary primary HMI, and the primary HMI itself, showing instances of the prefetches and when they're called. You'll notice in the dates themselves, you start to see the emergence of pre-2011 dates. Uh-oh. We compare the Hive registries with the restore points and find software and end-to-user.dat had references to the malware. So this is suddenly getting pretty yucky. It's self-sustaining. It has the ability to go and call home. It wants to create a C2 channel. And if it goes live, it's got flooding and denial of service and things like that. So going into the USB analysis, we cross-reference the active system Hive with the restore points. And once we have this, we take a close look at the human-machine interfaces on two principal sites, right? We've got 34 USB, 34 USB devices and 26 on the primary HMI. We get it down to being able to determine that we think there are four USB-capable removable media elements that are responsible for getting this in here. Now we've got to cross-correlate it with the timestamps. The problem is, is that the first infection happened 150 days prior to detection, and we just found it six months earlier from where it is. system wasn't really running for six months. The live analysis on the actual binaries, we're going to look for a bunch of different things, the least of which is open process tokens, availability for the malware to allow the adversary to go in and make changes. So running down the list, we see adjust token privileges, flooding done in an ISS, start flooding super sin, the call out to the .info site. That's a string analysis for this puppy as well. And we're like, wow, this is real. Where is it actually living? We then go into the RAM and volatile data. See this thing actually breeding itself and running, and how is it infecting the control system processes now that we've actually tied? Because we want to get closer to find out where it came from. And if you actually look down this list here, it starts to show up with all the pattern matches for all the, you know, we want to go and we, we acquire the hooked and hidden entries and dryers and look for known bad stuff. And what pops up is the desktop INI, CSRXX.exe, and the Mizzetyke, which is fine, we knew that. There's other ones here, SOS.exe, another execute, and Legends of Mirror. Like, oh my god. For those of us that have actually done this, we have a problem because we know that that is what? It's Phyllis. It's not Hamweck. The problem is, is that when we start looking through these files, we find the artifacts for the Phyllis virus in the HMI. None of the AVs that we've looked at record evidence of Phyllis. The registry settings for current user, local machines, or any of these. It turns out that these are remnants. The other bad thing that it picked off is that the executable file that it actually found and wanted to tag as hostile, if you were not investigating the system from a control system's perspective, you would go in and erase that. The problem is, is that in this particular case, that executable was a customized integrator slash vendor written file for OPC, object linking and embedding for process control. This was the executable that actually facilitated for the cooperative engagement and data exchanges between the disparate vendor solutions running the plant. Take this out, the world goes dark. We do the containment. We actually have this issue with trying to manage two antivirus solutions with two very different install protocols. Briefly, and we're just going to jump right to the end here because the end is really exciting. It is exciting. This isn't, the lights were exciting. Comparing infection versus the shutdown, we got to the point, and we'll see why, we could no longer be involved in the investigation because it just got to the point where it had to be handed over to law enforcement and the actual asset owner who had issues to take care of with their partners. 
But at the time of finishing this, we could not find causation. Although there was elements of being close when you actually had infection and system shutdown, we couldn't do, could not actually do or deduce causation to shutdown. So we had to go back and spend looking at the full scope HMI analysis. We traced all the activity that the machine itself, which was delivered as the principal operator machine, the human machine interface that runs the plant as far back as we can go. Roll it all back to pre-HMI engineering workstation. Traditionally, you're looking at this going, well, it's not really going to do much because you're going to get like a month's worth of data because the system is rebuilt and delivered clean. But yet we have incidents that say the artifacts existed before it actually showed up. We go down to the vendor remote access security, first of all, and there's 40 USB and five portable hard disk drives used in the development, including, this is where things got fantastic, including two different iPhones and two different iPods. The remote vendor access, it turns out, 24 by 7, access to the HMIs in the control room floor facilitated across 10 rule categories. Anybody can come in if you come within a resource within a certain class A. You connect under a certain class A, you're into the HMI if you can actually get into that VPN. So that's very interesting. This is just a quick screenshot where we actually see the device name, the description, the device type, whether or not it's connected, because this is all the historical USB overview for the injection into the target machine. This is what it looked like for the engineering workstation, but we want the HMI, because that's where we think it came from. Looking at the historical list of USB injections into the human machine interface, we see iPhones and iPods. We can actually then peel, because we actually know serial numbers, device names, when it went in, we can go back historically into what shouldn't be there and actually see the iDevice is getting jacked in. We have the iDevice, we have the serial number, we know when it was put in, and we know where it was writing to in the system that should now be cleaned around the same date that the viruses showed up. Is there anything in there that would show us abnormal behavior during the development process? How about the browsing cache around Halloween or around Valentine's Day? This is actually pulled from the machine that became the HMI. Someone was on the machine going to Victoria's Secret, cologne sites, chocolate, but because it's Valentine's Day, we're thinking, if we can go and probe the system farther, what else is actually in there that actually came off this quote-unquote phone? Well, what do you do with an iPhone lots of times? You take pictures of yourself. Where am I going with this? Sure enough, Mr. Developer thinks it's so important this is supply chain love, baby. He actually left photos of himself on the system and managed to push it out there through disabling the firewall and live messenger. This is on the very device that became the core operating system and human machine interface to drive a multi-tiered major gigawatt gas turbine generator. So at this point, we had to leave. I actually don't know what happened. Well, I know in the background, probably the asset owner had a nice conversation with the vendor. Who's this guy? Wow, where'd you get that picture? <laughs> I got it from buried in the human machine interface that you made for me. <laughs> Lessons learned. When you're doing this, please do not stifle creativity. You can't. If you can think about it, the bad guys can think about it. Stretch the boundaries of traditional investigation for control system, bearing in mind that you have to come up with some new ideas about doing real-time investigation. Live forensics is absolutely possible. Do not tell people you can't do it. There are issues in dealing with legacy systems when there's 25 or 30 years old, and all you have is things like fault tables and PLCs and field devices and things like that. Don't let people that contemporary tell you contemporary systems for control automation can't be done. You need a predefined investigation plan that's going to be tuned appropriately to the critical assets and the availability of those critical assets. 
be very careful of the antivirus signatures, that, because they will, if left to do what they want to do, go and eat and destroy mission-critical operational files, because so many of them look the same. Now, asset owners out there have seen this before. This kind of discussion is for the non-asset owners, people understanding the difference, wanting to learn about the differences in security from IT and control system. What saved these guys was the absence of world-accessible DNS in the process control network. If they actually had a DNS server that was going to resolve to the rest of the world and an egress filter that was going to facilitate this, this thing would have gone nuts. It would have actually gone out there and did what it was supposed to do. Their egress filtering for non-process control network activities was instrumental in actually stopping it. Please spend some more time looking at the supply chain. Right? The platform used as clean, critical assets are not necessarily going to be between. There is the element of security development lifecycle that vendors are now starting to include. You should not have to experience what this particular asset owner did. Right? It does illustrate, though, the ease at which you can actually implement malicious code and malware into the system and go virtually undetected. And not all forensics tools work on all SCADA systems. That's the sad takeaway from this. You can't just apply everything. The processes and procedures work, but not every tool works like it does in the IT space, and that's just a fundamental issue associated with the application specifics of control system technology. And be prepared for the investigation tempo to be impacted, the availability of machines, weather, and all of these things. I have hit my wall of time, but I want to thank you very much. I'll be fumbling around somewhere out there, and I encourage, uh, if, you have, if you want to chat, please. So, Thank you, and thank you, guys. Thank you, sir. One question? Yeah, sure. Okay. Maybe one or two questions because we're moving into the morning tea break. Don't see it. I ran over. I blew, okay, I blew no, the. Yeah, they don't want to see uh, Oh, we've got one? Oh, one, really? Yeah, we got one. Okay. Oh, we got two. Oh. One, two. Um, I was just curious how you deal with, like in a, a, a segmented solution like you would have in a typical production control environment, um, things like uh, the Acronis, um, like distributed backup solutions, um, how do you deal with uh, uh, balancing, you know, uh, live running uh, uh, low latency uh, production environment versus the, all that the shared management services across for backup logs, everything like that, without right. punching holes through all the tiers, basically? Right, so that's a, very, that's a very good question. The solution that they had for the managed backup across the environment was instrumental. This is a very, very young system, right? So we got lucky in the fact that the Acronis solution was actually kind of being tested. Whether or not it was actually going to involve as a persistent capability for them to do that had yet to be determined. So we don't really have the answer. There are organizations that are actually trying to do that. The main problem is, is that you're using the same data framework for the backup that is instrumental in managing the data that's running the system on high availability networks. And this is not a problem that is easily going to be solved by a lot of uh, control system. I mean, it's an easy solution for IT, but you actually get down into trying to do it because you only have one network to be able to do the backup for this. We got lucky in the fact that the Acronis stuff was done because they were still instrumental in their, in their build-out for us. So there are a variety of different solutions as it relates to trying to manage the backup process, how you're going to do it on high availability networks. This is an ongoing discussion. Lots of vendors are going to have lots of different answers for you. All right. Thank you. Uh, and I think everyone um, is probably working out why uh, people say, um, uh, who do you call? Uh, Mark. So thank you, Mark, for being the presentation.
Thank you.